Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. It's James Rudd here, the Digital Media Editor. Today I'm discussing a paper which is called Aspirin and Statin Therapy for Primary Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease in Older Adults. I have a chat with Dr. Mike Midema and we discuss the pros and cons of aspirin and statin in this particular age group where there really is a lack of good clinical trial data and how he finesses it in his own practice. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much, Dr. Medima, for joining me today on the Heart Podcast. I wanted to get you on to discuss a paper that you've written with co-authors Sophie Montgomery and John Dobson, uh, which is called Aspirin and Statin Therapy for Primary Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease in Older Adults. So thanks so much for joining me. Maybe we can start off by having you introduce yourself for the Heart audience. Who are you and where do you work? Yeah, thanks for having me. My name is Michael Medema, and I am a preventive cardiologist. And I'm currently the Director of Cardiovascular Prevention at the Minneapolis Heart Institute. And then I'm the Director of the Nolan Family Center for Cardiovascular Health at the Minneapolis Heart Institute Foundation, which is our research entity. So I spend most of my time in clinical practice and then also time in research trying to figure out uh, who should get the right preventative therapies. So this is a really apposite paper, I thought, and definitely worth a wide audience that will hopefully get through the podcast and be made uh, free access as well for a few weeks after the podcast comes out. But uh, maybe you can give us a little bit of background to the paper. What prompted you to write this paper, write about this subject? What is the evidence that's missing from this aspirin and statin in older adults? Yeah, it really was the population that we focused on here in that we have lots of data for aspirin. We have lots of data for statins. We don't have very much data in older populations. It's a little bit akin to what happened with uh, women in cardiovascular disease at the end of the 1990s, where we hit the end of the 90s. We said, wait a minute, cardiovascular death doesn't seem to be going down for women like it is in men. And we started evaluating things and we weren't including them in trials. Uh, and really at that point, there had been a focus on how cardiovascular disease was very different in women. You know, they had different symptoms and different anatomy. And I think that was true, but it led to folks that, you know, cardiovascular disease is completely different in women when there's much more overlap than there are differences. And I see that kind of being the same case in older populations where there are definitely things we pay attention to. There's some more nuance there, but, you know, to think that a statin doesn't work in somebody who's 76 when it does work in somebody who's 74, you know, that's probably not the case either. And so it's a group of people that deserve special attention. Uh, and it's a group that we don't have quite as much data on as we do for the middle-aged population. And so there's always questions raised. What about elderly people? How should we approach this in an elderly population? That's really what the point of the paper was. And why do you think older patients are different? Obviously, apart from their age, the obvious thing. But um, you mentioned there that you know perhaps they've been excluded from some of the large-scale primary prevention trials. They obviously have comorbidities, frailty, et cetera. But perhaps you can talk a bit more about why you think this paper is going to be useful for people in guiding decision-making in this population group? Yeah, it, it's a population where priorities might be slightly different, right? Uh, we factor in frailty, we factor in cognitive ability, uh, and we factor in the patient's wishes. Not that we don't do that in middle-aged patients, but I think as you get older, you get more autonomy. You know, I, I think to take it to the extreme, I think most cardiologists would not start a statin on a 98-year-old, right? At some point, your values are different. You value more quality of life than you do extending life. And so it's a population where our goals and our goals of care just kind of change over time a little bit. And so the frailty and the polypharmacy, you know, we don't want patients taking too many medications and we have the ability to potentially de-prescribe medications, take medications that people have been on and suddenly and stop them. You know, so it's a, it's a unique population in how we approach them. Can we just talk for people who are not uh, familiar with the term frailty and uh, impairment, functional and cognitive impairment? What do you mean by, by frailty um, as applied to this paper? 
Yeah, it's kind of a generic term, but basically it's, you know, your ability to function on your own and your ability to kind of withhold and withstand uh, challenges. And so it's a broad range, right? For 80-year-old people, for instance, you know, we have some that are living independently, they're able to drive their own car, they'll get their own groceries, they're able to function very well at that level. And some people are wheelchair-bound in a nursing home and need help with their medications, need help with a lot of things. And so frailty is a spectrum, um, but we know as you get more and more frail, you're more likely to have side effects from medications, more likely to have complications from medications. Your bleeding rate goes up with aspirin, for instance. And so the more frail you are, not only is it potentially there less likelihood of benefit, um, but there's also potentially more likelihood of harm. Got you. Okay. Well, let's talk first of all about aspirin, because I think that it's perhaps a bit more clear cut there. Um, what is the primary prevention evidence like um, in older patients? And maybe you, you can perhaps start off by telling us what it's like in younger patients for primary prevention. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, for aspirin, we probably have more randomized data on aspirin than we have for any other medication in the history of mankind, and yet we don't quite know what to do with it. Right. Uh, for middle-aged populations, by the older data, so the, you know, the Physician's Health Study came out in 1989, showed very clearly a reduction in myocardial infarction, a reduction in heart attack. There's about 30 to 40% less heart attacks in people on aspirin compared to the placebo, and that extended over time to stroke in women. And so by the mid to late 90s, we said, you know, for most individuals above age 50, if you're middle-aged, you know, you should think about taking an aspirin a day. And then now more recently, we've repeated the trials. And in the modern era, the benefit of aspirin seems to be much smaller. Uh, and there's several different reasons for that. But, you know, as we've developed statins and developed better blood pressure pills and better diabetes interventions and less smoking and less secondhand smoke and less trans fats in the diet, all those things reduce heart attack. And so the rates of heart attack have gone down quite a bit uh, across the country. And so the benefit of aspirin gets smaller and smaller. And aspirin has a bleeding risk. And so at some point, you get to the point where the benefits of the aspirin are outweighed by the risks. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of middle-aged populations right now. And so for older patients, um, we don't have as much data, but one of the recent trials simply focused on an older population. The ASPRI trial was above age 70 of people living independently without cardiovascular disease. And it was a baby aspirin versus a placebo. And over five years, they didn't show any benefits. Uh, and so in an older population, we also saw an increase in bleeding. And that's one of the things that's been very consistent in the aspirin trials is that the bleeding risk goes up with age. And so the rate of major bleeding in a population of people in their 80s is not insignificant. And so, you know, these aren't nosebleeds. These are GI bleeds that put you in the ICU and intracranial bleeds that are potentially life-threatening, you know. And so it's not something we want to ignore by any means. And so for the elderly population right now, we'd say in general, the risks of aspirin are outweighed by the benefits. I think it's always easier when it's a yes, no answer, but there's a little more nuance to that. You know, some of the recent trials have been pretty rigorous in the way they do things. What I mean by that is um, we choose a composite outcome, which includes cardiovascular death, which would seem like the right thing to do. But yeah, we know there's a lot of cardiovascular deaths like heart failure and arrhythmias and aneurysms that aren't influenced by aspirin at all. Aspirin is not going to prevent those. And so right. when you include those outcomes in the trial, you're kind of potentially diluting the benefit of aspirin. You're including things that aspirin isn't going to affect. And so it makes it more likely to get a null result. We also do these long-term studies with these intention to treat analyses, which basically include everyone in the outcomes, even if they withdraw from the study. So you have a log study where people move and things happen and they get tired of being in the study and they withdraw, and yet they're included in the analysis, even though they're not on aspirin anymore. And so again, that biases it towards the null as well. And in some of the more recent trials, when they look at the per protocol analysis, meaning let's look at the people who actually stayed in the trial and stayed on aspirin, then we do see a benefit. So I think, at least my opinion, the relative benefit of aspirin is the same as it's always been. You get about a 30 to 40% reduction in heart attack. The issue is, is that heart attacks aren't very common, especially if, in people that have risk factors that are well controlled. And so the benefit is very small from an absolute standpoint. And if you're an older patient, it probably is outweighed by the bleeding risk. Yeah. 
and I, we should emphasize this is primary prevention you're talking about now, right? Yeah, the, the data for secondary prevention haven't really changed. Yeah, exactly. They're well established, whatever your age is. Okay. And what about statins? Um, that's a more complex and nuanced picture, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting when we talk to patients about aspirin, they're much more willing to take an aspirin than they are a statin typically because they associate statins with, you know, potentially toxic side effects. By the trial data, the statin is safer than the aspirin. Uh, and so I think, you know, for elderly populations, we generally discourage aspirin use. For older populations, we don't necessarily discourage statin use. You know, if you're healthy and want to continue living independently, um, a, a low-dose statin is pretty reasonable to reduce your cardiovascular risk. We do have some evidence that it does reduce risk in that population. Again, to think that the mechanism of benefit is different in an 80-year-old than a 60-year-old, I'm not so sure that's the case. We do factor in a little bit more concern about side effects. We obviously don't want to do any harm to that population. And so to me, it really gets down to the concept of shared decision-making. You know, when you're 80 years old, you have a lot of autonomy, you're gonna make your own decisions. We want it to be an educated decision though. And so I think that statins do have benefit in older populations in the right individuals. Again, that's where we factor in the frailty and factor in cognitive function. You know, to me, the healthier you are as an older individual, the more likely I am to recommend for you to take a statin. So I think that's where the most quality of life can be preserved potentially. Right, okay. And what do the guidelines tell us? The European, American, UK guidelines? You go through them all in detail in the paper, but just as a, yeah. a sort of overview. They all vary a little bit, which tells you we don't, we don't know for sure what the right answer is. Right. Um, but they all give kind of lukewarm recommendations, basically, where you say, if you're above 75, we're not quite as sure that it works as well as what we think. We don't have the same amount of evidence as we do in a middle-aged population. Uh, and so it's an option, but it's not an option that we push. You know, We don't make it a grade one or a class one recommendation where you definitely should do it. Instead, they say in the context of shared decision making, it's something you should think about. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of ways that we can maybe improve uh, our prescribing of these medications and sort of targeting to the people most at risk, can you talk a bit about calcium scoring? Because that was interesting to me and, and to see that mentioned in your paper. How does that guide your practice? Yeah, um, we do a fair amount of calcium scoring in our practice, but mainly in a middle-aged population. Yeah, so that's where most of the data is for. Again, where you know we know very clearly we're not very good at looking at someone and estimating their level of risk. Um, we're often uh, a little bit off in those situations. So there's always been in preventive cardiology, you know, a desire to have some sort of crystal ball. If we knew where things are headed, it's a lot easier to make treatment decisions. And we don't have a crystal ball, obviously, but a calcium score, a marker of how much plaque is in the arteries is a pretty good marker of future risk. Plaque burden in total is really what conveys future risk. Right. And so to measure plaque burden non-invasively with a CT scan is pretty easy to do. It's relatively cheap. It's a low dose of radiation. And so it's a pretty easy test to acquire. And it really helps guide how aggressive we're going to be with our preventive treatments. You know, if there's no plaque in your arteries, it's really hard to have a heart attack anytime soon. Uh, and so in those people, we potentially be less aggressive with their preventive therapies. In an older population, it's a little bit tricky because the the prevalence of plaque is definitely higher. You know, if you do a calcium score in an 80-year-old, you're probably going to find some plaque. And so right. we use it less often in that population, but yet we still do use it on occasion. If you've got a 75-year-old and they're really uncertain what to do with their statin, you know, I'm not sure I want to take one, but I really would like to avoid a heart attack if I could, you know, to get an idea where their plaque burden is at can be helpful. We definitely do see zero scores and low scores in that population sometimes. And we see scores that are much higher than what we thought they would be. And so you help use that to kind of help guide your aggressiveness of your treatment, I think is pretty reasonable. We also now have several other additional lipid lowering options with Zetia and PCSK9 inhibitors. We want to use those kind of in the people who are most likely to benefit. And so even if people who are on a statin, the calcium score can be helpful to decide, do we need to do anything more here? Do we need to be really aggressive with driving their cholesterol down or can we take a more conservative road? And just as talking about a way of improving things, you mentioned calcium scoring there and obviously taking into account frailty and uh, cognitive and functional impairment. Can you walk us through figure two, which is a really nice uh, figure in your paper? Obviously, this is an audio podcast, so people may not have it directly to hand, but 
as a guideline to practice, how does that help? Maybe you can walk us through. Yeah, we, we kind of wanted to come up with some sort of algorithm that's going to help guide how we approach this. And, right. you know, if you're above 75 without any clinical cardiovascular disease, you know, the first part of this, just like it is for a middle-aged population, is to promote a heart-healthy lifestyle. We don't need a calcium score or any other testing to decide if you should eat healthy or if you should exercise. And the goal of those things is not to lower your cholesterol. You know, people who eat healthy and exercise, they feel better and they live longer and they're happier and they have better mental health and better physical health. You know, it's beneficial across the board. So that's an easy one. We don't need any risk assessment to decide what to do there. And that should be the main focus. That's always more important than any pill we could help them prescribe. Um, after that, you know, we want to assess their risk. And in an older population, in general, they're going to be at elevated risk because age is a main driver of cardiovascular risk. And so in general, most are at an elevated risk, but if they're uncertain, using that calcium score to decide exactly how much risk we're at is helpful to do, I think. And then we factor in the other things, you know, the age-related factors, how many medications they're on, how frail they are, what their goals are, which is really important. You know, some people want to do whatever they can to reduce their risk, then we tend to be a little more aggressive. Some people say, I only want to take a medication if I really need to then it's pretty reasonable to hold off. We really factor in their goals of care. I think that's probably the most important thing. And then we look at lifetime benefit. You know, are there competing risks here? Do they have metastatic cancer? Are they about to go on dialysis? There are other things that really impact their longevity to where, you know, with aspirin and with statins, one of the things that really matters is duration of treatment. You know, if you lower your cholesterol for a month, that doesn't really do very much. If you lower it for a decade, that can do quite a bit. And so factoring in the competing risks there is really important to understand what their lifetime risk is. Um, and then from there, we move on with the patient to make our decisions. And like I said before, for aspirin, I'd say we use it pretty rare at this point. Uh, most people above age 70 probably don't need a daily aspirin for primary prevention. The bleeding risk outweighs the benefit. That being said, if they've been on it for a while and are tolerating it well, and they say, boy, it's gone well for me, and I want to keep lowering my risk for heart attack as much as I can. Some people say, you know, I'm not so worried about bleeding. I really don't want to have a stroke. You know, and so we try and factor in their goals of care again. But in general, for most people, we aren't using aspirin, and, and quite a few people were stopping it. For statins, it's a little bit different. Um, we tend to use those a little more frequently. We tend never to go at a, a max dose. You know, most of the side effect data for statins is pretty reassuring in the randomized trials. In most of the randomized trials, the rate of side effects on statins is exactly the same as the placebo group, um, which isn't really the perception out there, but that's what the trials have showed us. And so the only time we see hints of, of more side effects tend to be at the full dose. And so for elderly patients, I do a lot of 10 milligrams of rosuvastatin. You know, 40 milligrams is a standard dose, so just 10 milligrams at a low dose. And they'll still lower their cholesterol pretty effectively. And we tend not to get more aggressive than that. Fantastic. You mentioned stopping medications sometimes when patients have comorbidities or competing risks. And an interesting thing in the paper I found was that you talked about sometimes the risk of stopping these medications, particularly aspirin. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that uh, and when you might think about doing that? Yeah, we do have evidence that when you stop the aspirin or you stop the statin, the cardiovascular risk does go up a little bit. Neither of those medications have a durable benefit, right? Once you stop them, the cholesterol numbers go up, or once you stop them, the platelets start working normally again. Uh, and so when we do stop them, there is a little bit of risk for that, but in general, it's a pretty low risk thing. Uh, it's interesting, you know, it's just kind of provider inertia. We have a lot of uh, providers that are very comfortable not prescribing aspirin for primary prevention in an older population, but yet they're very uncomfortable to stop it, you know, right. and really that's kind of the same decision. It just feels a little bit different when we withdraw a medication. It feels sometimes patients can get the perception that we're kind of giving up on them, so to speak. And so I think we have to be very clear. We're just evaluating risks versus benefits here. Um, and as you get older, the risks seem to go up a little bit and the benefit stays relatively small. And so stopping it is a pretty reasonable decision. Thank you very much indeed. And is there anything you'd like to share, Dr. Medea, just before we finish, anywhere people can go and find out more information? Yeah, we encourage you to read the paper. Like I said, I think it's a helpful paper. And, it, you know, in the modern era, we like things to be yes and no. This is just a situation where there's a lot of nuance. And so, you know, when this shared decision making concept came out about a decade ago, I think a lot of people thought, oh, this is just, you know, kind of fluffy and doesn't really matter so much. 
the more I do this, the more important it is. We want our patients to make the decisions for themselves. When they make their own decision, they tend to be happier with it. We just want it to be an educated decision. Do you have any tips for sort of good shared decision-making practice? I mean, again, there's another article which is just coming out in Heart this month, uh, which focuses entirely on this issue around valvular heart disease. But do you present patients with uh, the risks and benefit as you're aware of them? Do you tailor the conversation depending on their level of interest and engagement? How do you make that work? Yeah, I, I think this is really important. I think patient education really matters, and you have to do it in a way where the patient finds it somewhat engaging. You know, to go through the stats and go through the data can be a little bit boring and a little bit overwhelming sometimes. So really try and simplify it into what are the risks and what are the benefits and help them understand, you know, that it's their choice. At the end of the day, they're empowered to choose what they want. We just want it to be an educated decision. Perfect. And that's a, a great note to finish on. Thank you so much for your time. And as I say, I will make this paper free to access for several weeks after the podcast comes out so everybody can enjoy it. And uh, yeah, thanks once again for joining me. Excellent. Thanks for having me.